Dr. Phillips, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Phillips. You're joining us from Ontario? I am. Joining Ontario, yes. Thank you for being here to give testimony in this proceeding. Dr. Phillips, can you start by going over your uh, medical credentials? Yes, yeah, so uh, I, I graduated from Dalhousie uh, Medical School uh, in New Brunswick in 2016. Uh, after that, I, I did go to the University of Toronto, uh, where I completed uh, my two-year family medicine residency. And after that, uh, I entered into practice. All right, and, and can you give a little summary of where you were practicing? Sure. Yeah, like many new graduates, uh, I primarily worked uh, locums, which is basically filling in temporarily uh, at various locations, um, uh, as well as I had a, a weekly uh, addictions medicine practice uh, where I saw patients once a week in downtown Toronto uh, giving methadone and suboxone. Uh, but uh, as time went on over the last few years, uh, I did kind of narrow down the places where I was working doing eMERGE and family medicine uh, to Nipigon and Englehart, and then eventually I moved full-time to Englehart uh, at the beginning of 2021. Okay, and, and your locums were in the area of uh, family medicine and emergency medicine, or? Yeah? Yes. Okay. And your practice in Nipigon um, was in the area of emergency department work or family? Uh, both, yeah. So comprehensive family, which is inpatients, uh, office-based family medicine, and emergency. Thank you. And Dr. Phillips, can you confirm that you sent me a copy of your CV? I did. All right. And the CV, for the record, is exhibit number TR001. Are you currently practicing, Dr. Phillips? No, I'm not. I'm currently, my, my medical license is suspended by the CPSO since May 3rd, 2022. Okay, and, and uh, why was your medical license suspended? Uh, so, uh, it was suspended uh, primarily for holding a medical opinion that is contrary to uh, the public health uh, directives and uh, some of the consequences of that. Um, uh, we'll get into some of those details later, but... Uh, that's yeah. essential. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. When was the suspension effective? Uh, May 3rd, 2022. Dr. Phillips, did you take the Hippocratic Oath, and what is that? I did take the Hippocratic Oath uh, as part of our, our ceremony at uh, Dalhousie Medicine. Um, it's, a, it's an oath, uh, basically, uh, that the medical profession has taken, uh, or, or some other oaths that, that are also taken across the world to, in order to uphold um, medical ethics uh, and to put the patient and our oath to the patient first above any other authority uh, so that the patient's interests are always the number one uh, uh, priority of, of doctors uh, in that doctor-patient relationship. And I'm sure you took that oath seriously. Do you know what the Declaration of Geneva is? Dr. Phillips. Yeah, so um, so during the course of World War uh, II, both in Germany and Japan um, and uh, many other places, there were atrocities committed by these regimes that were primarily carried out by doctors, physicians, physicians who were actually captured by a public health 
ethos, right, of, of believing they're doing what's best for the race, uh, for the Aryan race as an example in Germany, uh, um, and, or just following government directives or following orders. And so uh, after the doctor trials in Nuremberg in 1947, uh, Canada, among many other nations, signed on to the World Medical Association. And the World Medical Association came up with this oath uh, as a way to prevent those atrocities from happening again, so that doctors will not just uh, follow orders blindly, uh, but will put the rights of their patient first. And if I can, if I can quote, it's a, I won't do the whole thing, but just a few of these, which are, I think are very mm -hmm. relevant. Most, uh, half the medical schools in the U.S. Uh, make the oath of, of the Declaration of Geneva, and most of them in, in Europe. Um, I'll, have, I'll just pull a couple out of it here. Um, I solemnly pledge to dedicate my, my life to the service of humanity. I will respect the autonomy and dignity of my patient. Um, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life. Uh, and most pertinent, I think, here is I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. Okay. So that was Canada's signature. Thank you. And it sounds like those passages in particular resonated with you, Dr. Phillips, did they? Absolutely. So, Dr. Phillips, on April 30, 2021, the College, um, College of Physicians and Surgeons Ontario issued a statement forbidding physicians from questioning or debating the official COVID-19 response measures in Ontario. What do you know about this and can you explain, uh, give a little more detail on that? Yeah, um, so although the college was quietly coming after doctors for uh, having an opinion that goes contrary to the government narratives before this, uh, amazingly, the college came out and very explicitly forbid doctors from carrying out our, our oath uh, and scientific method uh, for patients. So what they state in their, in their message that they just sent out as a tweet, it wasn't a policy, it wasn't a regulation, but they put this out uh, saying that uh, Physicians hold a unique position of trust within the public and have a professional responsibility to not communicate anti-vaccine, anti-masking, anti-distancing, and anti-lockdown statements and or promoting unsupported, unproven treatments for COVID-19. Um, uh, they, they go on to say, uh, physicians who uh, put the public at risk may face an investigation by the CPSO and disciplinary action when warranted. Okay. Um, so this was... This was shocking uh, to, to me and many others. Um, so uh, as a result, uh, I, I gathered together with a group of physicians um, and uh, we together created uh, Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth and made a declaration um, uh, asking and demanding for the CPSO to, to rescind their statement. Um, and and in, that, uh, in that declaration, which has... Um, uh, thousands of uh, signatories of the public, and uh, there's 700. Uh, there's over 700 uh, signatories in the physician category. Although not all those are embedded, but there's definitely hundreds in there. Um, basically, saying that this this statement to follow this would be a violation of our uh, three things. So one is the scientific method, which requires uh, the advancement of the, of medicine. Requires that we have to challenge the status quo. We have to be able to speak freely and to debate things, and that needs that requires us to be able to be wrong, right? Because otherwise, you can never um, you can uh, you can never uh, challenge things. 
The other one is our, our obligation to give evidence-based uh, medicine to our patients. And that means discussing the, 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 the evidence. If the evidence says there's, there's people are dying from this vaccine, that people are suffering severe adverse events, or that it's not effective, those could be considered as anti-vaccine views, but they're true. And so we, we have an obligation as physicians, no matter what the college says, to, to give the truth to our patients as we see it. Uh, the third one um, is uh, our duty of informed consent. So in order for us to, to administer a vaccine uh, to, to somebody, they have the right to be informed of all of these things. But the fact that we don't have any long-term data, but the fact that patients have died from these vaccines um, and, and, and many others, including for, for lockdowns, for masking and others, um, so without that, if doctors are muzzled, patients don't get informed consent, and that is their right. And so uh, we uh, basically demanded uh, from the CPSO to rescind their statement, which they did not do. Okay. And uh, you, you mentioned this uh, group of physicians that got together and, and created this declaration. Do you happen to know the website? Uh, yes, uh, canadianphysicians.org, where you can see our declaration. Um in its entirety, and the signatories too. Thank you. <clears throat> Dr. Phillips, where were you practicing in and around uh, the time of the pandemic, when the pandemic was declared? Uh, so, yeah, in, in the beginning of 2020, uh, I was uh, working between two sites. So I was living downtown Toronto, and but working primarily in northern Ontario, flying and flying out to Nipigon and Anglehead. Okay. And um, your your practice was uh, in hospital setting? Uh, hospital and uh, and office-based as well. Okay. What measures were taken in, in your region with respect to the COVID crisis? So in the hospitals you're working in and, and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there were a number, they were, and they were changing all the time. Uh, but some of the most striking ones uh, were the switch from... Uh, in-person medical care to uh, phone-based care uh, in, in the medical community. That was throughout all of Ontario, uh, where patients could not see their doctor unless they, in very rare circumstances. So almost all medicine was done uh, just by phone, uh, where doctors were asking patients to uh, do their own physical examination, which they're not trained to do, uh, and uh, basically doing guesswork. Uh, which uh, was was quite concerning. Did that Within pose hospital, any other con sorry? Did that pose any other concerns for you? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, in the beginning, I, I I was watching a lot of what the media was showing on and, and um, Italy and New York, and so I, I I was concerned that there was an extremely deadly virus coming around at that time. I, I don't believe that now, but um, but at that time, I thought. Maybe this is worth it, right? Maybe this is something we need to do because if, if everybody comes into the office and catches COVID, the, uh, the deadly form of COVID that I thought was coming, uh, then I thought it could be worth it. But, um, but yeah, uh, th that was kind of my main concern until later on when I started to see the real consequences of this shift. Um, and that's when um, I, I began to speak out. Okay. And what kind of con consequences were you seeing in your practice? Yeah, so um, uh, I was seeing a few things. So one is some dev like devastation to both the physical health and the mental health patients. Um, uh, to give you one example, uh, there was one 
patient who I saw in Emerge. Uh, over the last year, she was treated for back pain uh, over the phone, uh, to the, like severe back pain to the point that she was on opioids. And uh, she only came to see me in Emerge by the time her pain was so bad she had to call an ambulance. And when I saw her and physically examined her, what she called back pain was actually a giant tumor. It was actually her liver was riddled, riddled with, with cancer. Um, and I was not the only example of this, this late presenting cancer of, of patients who were treated over the phone. If they were able to see their doctor in person, um, uh, that could have been caught much earlier and possibly treated. Uh, but by the time uh, I saw her, it was, uh, it was metastatic. And I saw a number of patients like that. The other thing I saw that really concerned me um, was the mental health of patients. And while I did see an uptick in, in overdoses and um, in suicidality and depression uh, in eMERGE uh, in adults, what was most striking was the children. Uh, I've never seen so many suicidal children uh, as young as eight. Like, And uh, it's very rare for that to happen. But what I noticed a common thread, and that was uh, children during the height of lockdown when schools were closed, parents were told by, by uh, public health to keep their kids at home. No play dates, no play, no sports, nothing. And so these children were essentially locked up at home with no friends, no socialization. Uh, and that, I believe, is the, the, was the leading cause of the suicidality in children, uh, which concerned me. And nobody was saying anything. In fact, what I found most concerning is that at that exact same time, the Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Hospital Association, public health were, were saying, putting out advertisements saying, uh, Ontario's doctors are calling for stricter lockdowns to stop the spread of COVID. And I'm like, I, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not. Uh, and they didn't even send out a survey to ask uh, what my opinion was. And so that was what really led to me believing I, I needed to speak out here because there's no other side of the story that, that's getting heard, with the exception of the very few physicians. Okay. And um, Dr. Phillips, you worked in a hospital setting, and there was a lot of early concern that hospitals were going to be overrun by patients with COVID-19. What did you uh, observe with that respect? Yeah, so I, I, did, I did not see that at all. Quite the, quite the contrary. Um, uh, I saw, especially in the, in the beginning, a uh, uh, steep decline in, in the amount of patients who came in, especially in uh, early 2020. Um, that's, uh, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of nice at the time, not knowing these harmful consequences uh, because I was paid the same amount to do very little. Uh, but our, our emergency rooms were, were empty and there was very little COVID in our communities. Nevertheless, because of the, the media, uh, the people in our communities were still afraid and still reluctant to come in to seek care in the emergency department, which is uh, devastating for some people. Right. Have you had occasion to treat any patients that you believe were suffering from COVID-19? Uh, very few, uh, but yes, I did. Um, uh, we we had a few uh, in our in our community. Uh, the COVID wave came later, mostly after I, I was no longer working at the hospital. But while we did have a few, I, I did treat one uh, while I was working in the hospital in Kirkland Lake. And can you uh, offer any details about that situation? Yeah, it was, I, in my opinion, it was a very disturbing story. Um, I was a middle, eight, like 50s, 60s woman uh, who uh, came in uh, 
diagnosing COVID and she was short of breath to the point she needed oxygen. Uh, and at that time, there was so much evidence. There were, there were um, study upon study, I think there were 30 to 40, uh, when you bring those together, showed that showing that ivermectin uh, would reduce mortality by 50 to 70 percent. We have very few drugs that can do that. And so uh, when she came in and she was under my care, at that point I was working as a hospitalist on the floor in Kirkland Lake, uh, which is a, a sister hospital to mine in, in Englehart. Um, I uh, felt a duty to, to give her informed consent that, and to prescribe to her uh, ivermectin for, for the treatment of her, her, uh, of her COVID because um, she had a number of risk factors for severe disease or death. Uh, and so when I wrote that, uh, the pharmacist uh, reported me to the chief of staff. Uh, the chief of staff then ordered me to cancel that order for ivermectin, uh, including the, the zinc and, and vitamin D and other harmless vitamins that I also prescribed to her that we know uh, can be helpful. Uh, and he ordered me to uh, call the local ICU in Sudbury, well, the distant ICU in Sudbury, and get their uh, permission to um, to prescribe outside the guidelines, which require remdesivir, which is very harmful, uh, and uh, and others uh, such as steroids. Um, and they basically only allowed me to prescribe the steroids. So I gave her steroids, and uh, uh, but I, I was shocked that... Uh, this uh, chief of staff uh, ordered me to uh, cancel uh, life-saving treatment to this patient that in peer-reviewed research shows uh, reduces mortality. Approximately when was that? It was in, this was in March of 2021. Okay. And I think you said that was March 2021 that that occurred? Yes. Yeah. Have you had occasion to prescribe ivermectin again or was that the end of your prescriptions for ivermectin uh yeah uh i, I mean I, I would have uh but again my, in my community there, there was very little covid and the, uh, the ones that were there they were very mild or they didn't need to be hospitalized for the most part um i did prescribe ivermectin again to a patient who uh had what i believe could have been a vaccine injury uh where she received a dose of the vaccine and after that was very, very not had nausea lasting for weeks, nausea, fatigue, muscle aches, um, and uh, so I did prescribe according to uh, the FLCCC protocol, um, uh, which was ivermectin, fluvoxin, and atorvastatin, uh, which was successful. Uh, did resolve her symptoms, but uh, the pharmacist uh, reported me to the college, and uh, as a result of that, uh, the college did put a restriction on my license. Uh, forbidding me from prescribing ivermectin, fluvoxamine, or atorvastatin um, for COVID, and uh, among other okay. things, such as vaccine exemptions and mask exemptions. Okay, and we'll get into some of those details on, on the charges in a moment. Um, I want to move into the post-vaccine period. So you've spoken about that a little bit. You had a patient that had a vaccine injury. Uh, the rollout of the vaccines was in, in and around early 2021. What, if any, protocols were put in place at, at, your, at the hospital you were working in with respect to monitoring vaccine effects? So, I mean, our hospital spoke nothing at all about monitoring vaccine effects, but we do have a legal obligation to report uh, adverse events. Some of the more serious ones were obligated to, and then other ones were kind of permitted to. Um, 
Um, is it is uh, it a form that you complete, Dr. Phillips? Yeah, there's a form. So the CAPIS system basically uh, is very local in the sense that there's a form through Ontario Public Health uh, that we uh, fill out um, and send to our local public health officer who then in, is supposed to investigate and then pass the, the investigation on to Public Health Ontario. And then they're supposed to uh, amalgamate the data and pass it on to Health Canada. Okay. And you mentioned CAFIS. That's a Canadian Adverse Event Following Immunization Surveillance System. It's yes. a bit of a mouthful. Um, so the adverse event forms uh, that, that you uh, were just speaking about, those were the forms where, that the doctors would fill out in the hospital if they thought something was an, uh, a vaccine adverse event. Okay. Yes. And can you confirm that you gave me one of those blank forms? Yes. Okay. And that is marked as Exhibit TR-0001A. Uh, so TR-0001A is uh, the exhibit. It's the Adverse Event Following Immunization Reporting Form. <coughs> and so, um, Dr. Phillips, as I understand the, the uh, evidence that you just gave, you would not be forwarding that form to the CAFIS system. You would be forwarding, forwarding it to a public health officer who would then determine whether it would be filed with CAFIS. Correct. Okay. Um, is vaccine aftermarket monitoring an expectation for physicians? It is supposed to be, yes. And for what reason? And, 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 yeah. Um, we're actually obligated by law for certain, like severe ones, we're obligated to, to report these adverse events when we see them. Um, and then outside of that, there's kind of more of a permissive requirement. I think, in my opinion, it's an ethical requirement to pass on all adverse events that happen after these, especially in the context of um, uh, uh, an emergency use authorization. So something that's not fully tested, uh, but yet was rolled out early, uh, even more. We have a an obligation, in my opinion, an ethical obligation to report all ever possible adverse events so that uh, the, uh, the CAFIS system will be able to detect possible harm and be able to withdraw the product if, they, if it's warranted. Okay, and so the purpose is to, to monitor the, the, the safety of the product and the effectiveness of the product. Is that, is that correct? Okay. What kind of uh, events were physicians required to take note of according to the form, the adverse event so, form? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty broad on the form. I, I can't recall all of them off the top of my head, but um, uh, so... Well, how about yeah, this? So if, if you don't have the... I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, it's okay if you don't have it in front of you. It's marked as an exhibit in any event. Um, did you have any occasion to complete any of those adverse event forms? Yes. All right. Yes, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, so I can kind of go over. I did complete 10 adverse event reports that I sent in. Uh, I'll give you kind of the basic details of these reports really quickly here. Um, uh, so uh, all but one of them, as far as I know, were not submitted. At the court, and so nine of them were rejected, as far as I know. Um, so the first one is uh, a person with nausea for two weeks uh, and vomiting, including uh, hematemesis or bloody vomiting. Uh, this uh, started four days after the second dose of uh, Moderna. 
The second one was uh, an, a new onset uh, severe uh, vertigo uh, and ringing in ears by diagnosis vestibular neuritis that uh, came up four weeks after uh, his Moderna shot. Uh, the third one was uh, sudden onset in a, a young woman, uh, sudden onset arm weakness uh, for four hours, uh, weakness in the arm and complete loss of sense, like, uh, or decrease of sensation in the entire half of her body. Uh, with persistent uh, 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 loss of sensation in fingers, um, uh, lasting hours to days. Uh, so in, in my opinion, it was uh, stroke until determined otherwise, so I started her stroke protocol. How many um, days post-vaccination was she? So, oh, sorry, this was nine days after uh, her Moderna shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth one was an elderly woman with uh, severe delirium, a high fever, and left arm numbness uh, four hours after her Moderna shot lasting greater than 48 hours. That's the point I saw her. Uh, the fifth one was uh, a woman with, with dementia but was functional at home, uh, able to talk and walk. Uh, uh, but after her uh, dose, I'm not sure which vaccine it was, uh, she lost the ability, she slowly declined over the course of about two to three weeks uh, and lost the ability to communicate and, uh, and to walk as well. Um, the sixth one was uh, an older woman uh, who developed uh, uh, palpitations, so a heart issue, uh, possible arrhythmia uh, with severe hypertension. Uh, and that started uh, one week after her Moderna shot. Uh, the seventh one was... Uh, uh, a younger woman with uh, persistent numbness to the right uh, side of her forehead, so she lost sensation there entirely. No other symptoms, and really, but uh, but that started two hours after the Pfizer shot and then persisted. Uh, the eighth one was intermittent left, uh, so a, a man with intermittent left arm weakness. Uh, so he, his arm would become weak. He was dropping things. Was no longer able to work. Uh, that would happen three to five times a day. Um, uh, that started two days after his Pfizer shot, and two weeks later, uh, so it's two week, two days after, and then persisted, um, and then two weeks later developed persistent daily headache, nausea, and vomiting. So it could have been something going on in his brain or others. I don't have the final diagnosis because um, as an emergency, we don't uh, follow our patients, but we pass them on to others. Uh, they're investigated. The ninth one was. Uh, a middle-aged woman uh, who tragically, um, 16 days after her Pfizer shot, uh, with no other health history, uh, uh, had a devastating bleed into her brain after her blood pressure surged uh, into the 200s. Um, uh, she lost the ability to talk and uh, and walk. She was found on the floor, um, which again was devastating. And the 10th one is the only one that I know was actually accepted as an adverse event. And that was uh, a severe rash on a woman's arm that came on eight days after the vaccine. That was kind of a ring-like rash that spread up above her shoulder and down below. Okay. And so, as, as you've indicated, that 10th one where there was the, the rash on the arm, uh, that was at the site of the vaccination, was it? Yeah. yeah. That's the only one that you know uh, definitively was accepted. Yeah. And um, were... What happened with the rest of them? Did anyone contact you? Yeah, so I did. Uh, uh, I was contacted uh, 
by the public health officer. He sent me a letter after the first five. He told me that uh, none of these five meet their criteria for an adverse event, so they've all been rejected. And take note of that when I'm doing my reports. Um, uh, I send a note back to him uh, by fax uh, uh, saying, asking for the details of why each one of these were reported. Do you need more information? I want to make sure they're not just rejected for a clerical reason. Uh, and I did not get a reply. Um, so I was very concerned about this. I was concerned that the public were not getting um, informed consent about these possible severe adverse events. Many of those may have been strokes. Um, and so uh, in order for us to have a safe vaccine safety system, they need to be able to get these reports to be able to know if, if a product needs to be pulled off. So I did go public. Um, I uh, did an interview with Rebel News where I spoke about these adverse events and the letter that uh, I got sent saying they're all getting rejected. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, that public health officer complained to the CPSO and they're investigating me and I'm charged with professional misconduct for those nine uh, of the adverse events that uh, uh, were not accepted. They're calling it a being incompetent in filing adverse event reports, and they're saying I failed to meet the standard of practice in the profession. Okay, stunning. All right, Dr. Phillips, let's talk a little bit about your personal life outside of your clinical practice. You've, you've indicated that you were quite vocal about the concerns that you had that were going on inside your practice and in the hospital system. Can you speak a little bit about that? Um, like my, like my Twitter the, Yeah, the, what, the, the, you indicated that you were quite vocal outside yes. of the hospital yeah. system. So if you could get into a little bit of, of um, and you also indicated the public health officer came after you when you yeah. were vocal. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, yeah so uh, so around that time, like I said, at the end of 2020, when I was seeing that those, those harms from the lockdowns and that the medical association asking us to um, saying doctors are calling for harsher lockdown. That was the moment that I, I made the decision that I need, I need to speak out. Um, and so I got onto my Twitter account, and that's where I've done a lot of my speaking out about public health measures, about the science that public health isn't talking about, like vitamin D, exercise, things like that, other public health measures that are effective, and the ineffectiveness and harms of lockdowns, of masking, uh, and of these vaccines. Um, so I spoke out on Twitter, and I've done a number of alternative media um, interviews. Uh, and I even did a, a press conference with uh, Stick Derek Sloan on uh, Parliament Hill in June. Um, and for all of these, um, the, the, the college opened up an investigation, the Section 75 investigation of health here in Ontario, uh, and they uh, have charged me with professional misconduct and incompetence for my communications, saying that... Uh, uh, Again, like that statement before, that we're forbidden from saying anything that goes contrary to public health measures, um, and therefore uh, um, they've charged me with professional misconduct for all of it. Okay, and, and, and is that what led to the eventual license suspension? Yes. Uh, so all of these kind of these things combined, um, uh, yeah. So for speaking, they uh, they opened up a number of investigations that kind of pop, all piled on top of each other. Uh, essentially, the charges uh, are on my public speaking, uh, contrary to public health measures. Uh, they're charged me with professional misconduct for providing uh, prescriptions for ivermectin, uh, for vitamin D, for zinc, uh, and uh, vitamin C. Um, they um, have charged me with professional misconduct for providing vaccine exemptions to patients, uh, 
with for either medical conditions or for uh, being coerced as somebody promoting their autonomy. Um, uh, they've charged me with uh, professional misconduct. Um, I think that's the majority of it, but they've, and there's a lot of side charges as well. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, as well as reporting all these adverse events. So they've, uh, I have those nine charges of professional misconduct, breach of my adverse event reports. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. And um, I, I think you indicated some of this was also related to you writing exemptions and, and so forth. Yeah. Okay. And was that in the context of, of, you, of a family practice? Yeah. So some of it I did uh, privately, and then some of them I did in the emergency department. I had people coming to me uh, after they they saw me speaking publicly. They would come into the emergency department and ask um, for letters of support or for, or for notes. Um, and uh, I gave that to them, uh, either if they had a medical condition or, or sometimes uh, for patients who uh, were being coerced against their will and they were under duress and couldn't give valid consent. And so I gave letters of support in those, in those circumstances. Okay. And uh, it sounds as though, Dr. Phillips, that when you spoke out about your views um, with respect to your concerns with the protocols and so forth, were you somewhat under the microscope after that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, um, they, any interview that I gave on media, every tweet that I've ever made, any, anything I've ever said, um, uh, they have, uh, reported and gotten transcripts up to, to, to prosecute me. Uh, one funny story I, I found about this, I, I spoke, uh, in Toronto at the world, um, uh, freedom rally or, uh, in, I think it was in January, uh, and there's a whole crowd of people um, there at the rally. None of them are wearing masks at all, right? Because it's a freedom rally. <laughs> there's two people there coming in with masks with a, a microphone um, and, uh, and a recorder. And they kind of came right up to me. There's the only two people in the whole place wearing masks. And uh, I later found out in my disclosure that uh, that was the college <laughs> actually coming to record my speech. And okay. I have a transcript of it from uh, those two people at the, at the rally. Interesting. Yeah, that's definitely under the microscope. Yeah. Okay. Is it fair to say that your actions and, and um, uh, your, your actions throughout the um, pandemic and your willingness to speak out is directly connected to your desire to uh, protect and, and protect your pledge to your patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, what I'm most concerned about, and, and as a physician, uh, the way that I've always practiced medicine is that we're there as an advisor. We're there to, to share our medical knowledge to help patients make choices about their own health care. And I was so concerned about that, the, this change in ethics in the medical community where coercion is normalized and where doctors participate in coercion um, in in coercing patients into things, and I, I found it abhorrent, and that was what mostly led me to to want to speak out to protect the rights of patients for their for their wants, their desires, their uh, freedoms to be at the center of the the, the, the medical system and the doctor patient relationship. Yes, sure. thank you so much for offering your testimony here today, Dr. Phillips. There may be questions from the commissioners, so I'm going to ask you to hold on there.
hold on one moment. There may be questions. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Phillips. I just have a few uh, questions following up on some of the things that you've spoken about today. Um, early in your testimony, you talked about there being a college statement um, that was issued forbidding doctors from communicating uh, anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-lockdown type positions. Is that something that we have in our evidence as an exhibit? And if not, is that something that we would be able to, to take a no, look at? No, but would you be able to provide anything like that, Dr. Phillips? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's still on their Twitter feed. It's on their their website. They they, they have not taken it down. Yeah, I can I can I can send it on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, another thing you mentioned um, was about some of the early measures that were taken uh, early in the pandemic and the switch from in person visits with doctors to phone based appointments. And I'm just wondering if that was a requirement, a recommendation, or what was the the impetus for that to happen on such a large scale. Yeah, it, it was essentially a requirement uh, put out there. Um, if not, it was like ev virtually everybody was doing this, uh, and um, suggestions by the college uh, we now know are are, are requirements. They, if you treat a suggestion as a uh, as a suggestion, you will be prosecuted. So, uh, so yeah, that's basically what happened. Uh, they did have exceptions where if your if a child was to get a vaccine or if somebody. Uh, we're, we're supposed to basically talk to them first on the phone and then if required you bring them in for a physical examination so there were still physical examinations happening but it was drastically reduced and uh, uh, most doctors were depending on patients to kind of report their physical exam thank you uh, and the last question i had was around the public health officer investigation uh, that you talked about and um, I think you mentioned that it was after you had submitted your first five uh, reports that you received a call. Were you not contacted earlier than that as part of the investigation? No, I, I thought I would be. I thought they'd, they'd call me because like, I dictate a lot of my reports. So my reports, uh, again, working in eMERGE, it's not the same as a family practice where you kind of have an ongoing relationship with a patient. Uh, when I work that day, I submit all of my reports and paperwork that same time. So a lot of my reports are dictated and they're not kind of fully done yet. So I expected he would contact me back, ask me for more information, uh, or uh, ask me for my uh, dictated uh, reports from my eMERGE uh, uh, visit, and they didn't contact me at all, even after I requested him to contact me because uh, I was concerned about these rejections. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. B based on your uh, assessment of the, I would say, state of the art in terms of evaluating whether an adverse event report is is serious or not, what what was the protocol that was explained to doctor to guide them to fill out those reports? Did you have access to a specific protocol? So I didn't know about the protocol until uh, after, but in his letter, he sent me the guidance document uh, for what the, the criteria uh, they use to determine whether something qualifies for an adverse event or not. Uh, it is an extensive document, uh, but the number of, uh, of adverse events they're looking for is very, uh, it's limited to kind of one and a half pages. For COVID specifically, it was about 10. 
adverse events that they would look at. And if it didn't fit in that category, it didn't count. But one example I liked for how arbitrary uh, a lot of these criteria were, because I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, if, if you um, administer a vaccine and a patient has syncope, like they, they faint, uh, it doesn't count at all, unless they also have a, an injury. So if they faint, hit their head, and have a bleed in their brain, then that does count. But again, even in that circumstance, it only counts if it happens in 30, within 30 minutes. If that person faints at, at 31 minutes, and then they fall and have a bleed into their brain, that report will be rejected. So they have very arbitrary, and for each category, they have arbitrary time requirements. Uh, and if it doesn't fall within those strict criteria, they're rejected. Um, and these came up, these were uh, developed uh, before the COVID vaccines, uh, before the Pfizer data uh, that came out in a post-marketing analysis, they were forced to release uh, under a, a FOIA request in the United States showing like pages and pages of uh, adverse events of concern, right? So they had 10, just 10 on this form, uh, when there were hundreds to thousands that Pfizer notified and uh, and found were adverse events that we should be monitoring for. So um, my patients didn't fit in those category of those 10, therefore they were rejected. Uh, but we now know that even Pfizer themselves acknowledged a wide array of adverse events that my patients certainly would have uh, uh, been ex uh, fitting into. Uh, based on your best assessment again, uh, what would you say about the so-called under-reporting factor that in the States has been calibrated or has been assessed in the range of 40 to sometime up to 100? Some people say it's tenfold. What, what, what would your, be your, your evaluation on that in your practice in Canada? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you look at what happened with me, uh, it shows you what happens when you report adverse events. So there's a number of things that happen. One, they often get rejected. Um, so you get pushback from public health themselves. The other one is I got reported to the college and I'm being prosecuted for reporting these adverse events. Even if my adverse events were wrong, even if they weren't adverse events, how does it make any sense that it's professional misconduct to report them? Um, so, so that people know that. My, my case is very public. So I just use that as an example that doctors know there's consequences. So there's consequences on a number of levels from public health, from the colleges, their licenses at risk for reporting, and within their hospitals as well. So, so doctors, besides their maybe internal biases, uh, even if they didn't have those biases, their license is at risk from reporting any adverse events. Of questions. So, yeah, it's definitely underreported. Yeah, to answer the question, I have a couple of questions about the CAFIS system, and and for some people, uh, don't even understand what that system is. It's I, I, is it fair to say it's very similar to the VAERS system in the United States? Uh, no, no, uh, no. Well, yeah, no. It's 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 it, it it's it's the same idea, right? In, in that it's uh, vaccine adverse event reporting, uh, but. Avers has problems with its transparency, but it is extremely transparent uh, um, uh, compared to our Canadian system. So you can go on the Avers and you can look at those reports. They're just de-identified. You can look at them. Uh, anybody can report to the Avers system, uh, not just your doctor, 
uh, you can report it yourself, and, and they verify them to make sure that the lot numbers line up and the patient uh, to make sure that they're they're genuine. Um, but in Canada, it's completely uh, opaque. Uh, nobody knows who's reporting what, and there's multiple levels of censorship. So, so the doctor can choose not to report, um, even if the patient asks them to. Then, even if the doctor does report, it goes to the local public health officer, who is the person tasked with promoting the vaccine and forcing people to get the vaccine. That's their role. Uh, so they have a major conflict of interest in investigating adverse events. Um, so they have the ability to reject it. Uh, and, and then they send it to Public Health Ontario, in, uh, who has the ability to amass the information and filter even more out. And then they report it to Health Canada. So. It, there are so many layers for things to get um, uh, censored, uh, covered up, um, and I I can tell you I got an email as part of my disclosure for my um, uh, uh, charges at the college that uh, the public health officer sent on June 11th to to the college saying that my batch of adverse event reports uh, none of them were my my. My batch of adverse event reports were not submitted to Public Health Ontario. So, yeah, none of them, as far as I know, uh, made it into the system uh, to be able to be uh, reported to the safety system. Did, did you know prior to submitting those reports, adverse events reports, that they were subject to censor? No, I did not know that. I didn't know much about the system. I learned it along the way. Um, have you have you had any of your colleagues indicate to you that they were hesitant in reporting to that system based on your experience? Yeah. Oh, based on my experience, yeah. When people heard what happened to me, that yes, I've, I've heard from some that said they wouldn't report. I'll, I'll mention one more thing that um, really I found disturbing to me uh, that influence that for myself and some other doctors and that was in that letter and what I found out about that process is when the public health officer investigates um, they uh, and they decide something is not an adverse event they called up each and every one of those patients that I saw told them it was not an adverse event and told them that they're required to get their next dose so um, and that's documented in paper with every single one of them uh, so um, that I found very disturbing uh, because what I started to realize is that I'm actually putting my patients uh, in harm's way by reporting because they're going to be at risk of being gaslit in the sense that they're going to be told that this is not an adverse event because it doesn't meet these strict criteria and therefore they should get another dose of something that could have caused them severe harm. It's malpractice in my mind. To, if somebody had a reaction to Tylenol, we would put that in their chart and say, don't, don't take Tylenol. Uh, even if we were wrong about it, we want to be cautious and say, okay, look, stay away from Tylenol. This caused your arm to go numb. Don't take another one. Uh, but instead, when I report them, they're getting told to take another, and they're told it's not related. Um, and uh, it, I realized at some point it's actually harmful to patients to report these. Um, prior to the public health um, officer, essentially making a medical determination with one of your patients, are you aware of uh, two parts of the question? First, did the public health officer in any instance actually bring the patient in for examination before making a recommendation to that patient? 
No, they called them up, but uh, there were no physical exams in the documentation that I saw. Okay. And do you know anything at all, and this is perhaps a bit of a, a stretch of a question, but do you know anything of all about the public health officer's uh, clinical experience in treating patients? Uh, so in my area, he actually does. So he's a, he's a part-time uh, um, uh, family and emergency doctor, uh, and then part-time does uh, uh, um, the public health office. I think in the majority of places that are more populated, it's a full-time job. Uh, but uh, yeah, in my case, he does have uh, clinical experience. Okay. My, my last question on this is, is there, is there any practical suggestions that you might make for the future in order to improve this system, the CAFIS system? Yeah, so um, there's a number of them. So I, I think we need to follow the VAERS uh, system where any reports that go into that system need to be available to the public with removal of identifying information. Uh, there should be a verification process, but it should be more around the details, right? The, the name, age, date of birth, uh, the lot numbers, to make sure it's a genuine report, um, but then uh, don't censor it uh, um, uh, or keep it hidden. Uh, there needs to be a division of powers when it comes to investigating adverse events from vaccines um, and promoting vaccines. That's a major conflict of interest for the public health officer to be tasked with those same things. If you're pushing these vaccines on everybody, you're not going to want to see adverse events, right? You're not going to want to believe that you're pushing something that might be harmful to people. So you're going to be more likely to discount those adverse events. Um, so yeah, we, I think it needs to be transparent. And so they're submitted right away. The public needs to be able to submit them as well. If their doctor doesn't want to report it, patients should be able to report as well. Um, and we need cutoff criteria. After how many deaths are we going to tolerate before we pull something off the market? They pulled off um, uh, like treadmills after like four people just got injured, no deaths at all. Pulled off the market immediately. Breast uh, breast milk. I think one baby died from sorry uh, from baby formula. They pull it off the market immediately. At this point, there's tens of thousands of deaths, credible reports of deaths reported to the VAERS system. And it's still on the market, not only on the market, but being forced on people. It's it's an atrocity, honestly. But we need that criteria. We need to be like, after how many deaths? I would say five. Five credible reports of death pull something off. Like, we should not be giving this to the public. Maybe even five is too many. But right now, what's the point in reporting when we're, like, the, the criteria is already met. These things are deadly. They're dangerous. They kill people, including my own cousin. Um, autopsy confirmed. Um, and uh, they're dangerous. Like, so the reporting system's useless unless you're going to act on So we need to have laws in place that after a certain criteria, a product needs to be pulled off the market to protect uh, public safety. Thank you. A quick question. Is it normal historically for pharmacists to resort or to report physicians when they prescribe medications for their patients? Uh, that's not normal. I've never experienced that before. Uh, pharmacists do have a role um, to, um, to verify things and, and double check things, right? Because sometimes doctors do make mistakes and that's legitimate. But in all of those circumstances, they call back the doctor and they ask you to clarify 
is this what you meant to prescribe? Is this the right dose? And, and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll often catch things, but I've never seen where they go directly. They don't even call you and they directly report a prescription to the College of Physicians. That's new, I think. It's a snitch culture that's kind of developed over the course of COVID. Um, and it happened not just with the, the pharmacists for prescriptions for ivermectin, but it also happened with uh, 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 vaccine exemptions. So if you filled out an exemption, uh, a good chunk of the exemptions that I filled out were sent to the college from, uh, from employers as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a cultural thing that's, that's happened. Uh, it's was seen in totalitarian regimes like Russia and Germany. Um, um, and it's part of the totalitarian spirit. My last question is if you had to do this all over again, would you do anything different? Yeah, I, I, I would, uh, there's a few things that I, I would have done differently. Essentially, no, like on, on all these things, reporting adverse events or other things, maybe looking back now, seeing those patients uh, got called and told to get another shot, maybe I wouldn't have reported them as much, um, or I would have stopped earlier. Um, I would have still told the patients, like, look, uh, don't get this. But um, um, essentially, no, I think I, I made the, the decision that according to my conscience at the right time, and I learned so much along the way. So, of course, there's always things you would have done differently went forward. But as far as providing uh, treatment with ivermectin, providing exemptions to people who are being coerced against their will into gene therapy, uh, for uh, reporting adverse events and for speaking out to give people um, the other side of the story, the facts, the scientific facts, the, the, the harms from lockdowns and other things, I would totally do that again, uh, even knowing I would lose my license. Thank you, Dr. Phillips.